If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast Literary Nosy Parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and my very first novel, Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls, is coming on February the 11th, 2021. Insatiable will be available online and from bookshops. There's a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for your book listeners. Huge thanks to everyone who has already pre-ordered. It's the very best way for you to support the podcast. Also, we're really delighted to tell you that from today, we're supporting Books to Nourish to raise money for Fair Share, and you can bid for a chance to be on the podcast. I will interview the winning bidder or the person of their choice, either in their home if they're UK-based, or Zoom if they're elsewhere, or if they prefer to do it over Zoom, about their books and bookshelves, their life as a reader, and books they love the most. And the guest, if they're UK-based, will also get a delicious bundle of books from the Your Book Proof Pile. The episode will be shared on all major podcast platforms with your book listeners. For more information, visit bookstonourish.wordpress.com and check out at YBooked on Twitter and Instagram for information and to find out about how to bid. Now on to today's guest. Best-selling author, beloved comedian and joint taskmaster runner-up, it's the writer, joker and overachiever Mark Watson. We talked about his brand new book, Contacts, Loving Sarah Waters, Falling in Love with Flannery Brian, and how the current lack of plane journeys is seriously cutting into our reading time. I wanted to start by asking you about reading and mental health. And, you know, in the, the new novel, there's a very, I think, you know, moving and explicit and resonant discussion about, you know, mental health and I think how it's something that we all we all have and that we all struggle with. And I was wondering if there are any novels or any other books that you found really comforting or inspiring or that have helped you through hard times. It's not an easy question to answer because um, I, th- I think like, probably like a lot of people, I have not always found it easy to focus on reading when things have been bad mentally. I think that, you know, there's quite a lot of, um, I mean, it's a paradox really, as you say, um, a book can really transport you mentally. Um, but at the very moment you need that most, you sometimes don't have the mental energy to invest. One book I would, there are someone at the door, it's just everything, everything <laughs> way out of my control. Um, uh, one book I do, does come to mind is Darren Brown wrote a book on happiness, specifically on sort of happiness, it's just called Happy. I mean, it's not a novel, it's a, it's a kind of quite lengthy, exhaustive non-fiction book about um about the uh, the history of different ideas of happiness, but then it also has a kind of self-help aspect to it. And Darren Brown is someone I find quite inspiring as a thinker. Obviously, I love kind of him as a magician and trickster, but he's also very perceptive about the way the brain works. And 
so although someone who's like a TV illusionist might not seem like an obvious place to go for wisdom on how to be happy, he's got a very forensic way of looking at the mind because I suppose that's his business. So I found that a really fascinating book. He's just written a follow-up to it called A Little Happier, um, which is a kind of very slim companion piece, which I've bought and I can see it from where I'm sitting. It's, it's this close, but I'm sure you're the same. I've, I can see an awful lot of books in my house that I would love to read and I'm not going to for the time being. I will read his, but um, again, I, you may be about the same age as me. I'm definitely at the stage of life where uh, I already know I, I, I'm not going to ever read every one of the books that I want to, and I'm still acquiring books. <laughs> oh God, I think a kind of snow blindness sets in. And I know, when, I'm, you know, when I finish a book and I have that real panic of like, oh, but what do I do next? And that's the, the paralysis of choice, like, you know, going into an empty yeah. car park. I know. And if there's one area of life where uh, choice paralysis kicks in, it is books, I reckon. You've only got to walk into a bookshop and immediately you're absolutely overwhelmed by the, especially if you've written a book as well. It does if you need bringing down to earth, it's quite a reality check when you, you see how many other books just that day, how many other books have arrived in the bookshops. There's, it never ends. And um, yeah, an average trip through Waterstones, I could easily pick up a dozen books that about each of which I would think, Oh, this'd be great. I'd love to do this. And unfortunately I don't um, have time quite for any of them. At the moment. A lot of people find audio books um, are a good way of doing it because it's just, you know, you can sort of do that while, getting on with other tasks but I'm not very good at that I've, I've never I've not yet got the hang of listening to books really I like to have it in my hands I suppose with an audiobook what's tricky sometimes is you know you I think we're so used aren't we? and I wonder if because I've not read that Darren Brown book yet I again I would love to it's one of the thousands yeah, on the pile and it's big as well it's off-puttingly large you know <laughs> <laughs> that's why I thought, could, I, could I start with the second one first do the do the slimmer one I'll report back to you maybe the very the, the small one is it looks like about 100 pages it feels more like a sort of b-sides album so maybe just <laughs> read that and you'll feel as if you've got the gist of the much much longer one but you know i think there's this weird stress and pressure we're all under to sort of optimize everything and i think that you know reading and the side well if i'm listening to an audiobook i can do something else and just to sort of submit to a single you know voluptuous pleasure um especially because i, I do think reading no matter what we're reading i think there is something useful and nourishing and to be gained whether that's a it could be a sci-fi novel or a very you know serious and practical book about like how to rewire your house but yeah. you know there's something there for us but I think that sometimes yeah. when that feels obscure and not obvious it's really hard for a person to make the time to do that oh I um absolutely agree and I think that's perhaps why um I haven't warmed to audiobooks as an idea because I sort of don't want to be doing something at the same time I mean I don't I don't drive maybe if I drove I'd have but now I can't even imagine that because I'd, I'd have to concentrate really hard on the driving but I mean I'm, I'm happy if people consume my books in any format but I I think I'd find it quite hard and in fact I uh, recorded an audiobook for this one and as I was doing it I it's the first time I've done that I did sort of think what it would be like for someone to listen to it and yeah I don't know that I've got the mental capacity to grasp the plot of a novel while also looking after my kids or doing emails but also as you say that's not really the point the point is you want to be fully immersed some of the best most satisfying reading I've done over the past couple of years is um well very very little of this this year but last year I, I flew a lot I traveled a lot I uh, went to Japan and the USA it's almost weird to even be saying it I, you know. <laughs> um and on those flights I 
people often ask, what did you watch? What, what movies did you watch on the, on the plane? But I never do watch movies on planes because it's when I do the reading of long books. And I, I read a lengthy novel pretty much start to finish over the course of a return trip to Tokyo. And it was, um, yeah, it, nourishing is the word, I think. It was a wonderful experience. Nine or 10 hours with absolutely no focus apart from, well, I suppose I was drinking wine as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, when I'm reading on a plane, which as I say, I, I will often savour save a long book specifically if I know I've got a flight coming up I do think because there's very very little else to think about on an airplane you it is one of the purest forms of reading sensation and it took it takes me back to when I was a, like 16 and didn't have much else to worry about and could just uh, set aside time to read a book it's a really since we since you brought it up I do think about this a lot you know the simple truth that reading numbers decline because all of us are busier and and we consume entertainment in different forms and that's fine but an audiobook is not quite the same as a book is it because as soon as you do start combining book reading with six other tasks it's not quite the same as what it, what we think of as reading a book it's interesting I don't know what the answer is because I don't see us all going back to reading by candlelight and, <laughs> and that. but I do sometimes worry about what it means for our um, psychological setup that we don't have that space in our lives anymore it's true. I'm um, going back a bit. Uh, what was it that you were reading on that flight to Tokyo? It was a book called, and I, again, I can see it up there. It's called I Still Dream by someone called uh, James Smythe, his name is, or it might be pronounced Smith, actually. It's a sort of sci-fi novel, and I hardly ever read any sci-fi. I don't think of it as my thing. But, well, it isn't my thing. Uh, I've got no, generally have very little interest in, not, I'm not snobbish about it. It's just not my world, really. But this is a book about, uh, it must have been almost exactly this time last year, because I was in, yes, I was in uh, Japan on this day last year, it strikes me, just a year ago, and it's really stayed with me. It's, um, uh, it's a book basically about um, somebody who builds a, a very, very powerful um, artificial intelligence assistant thing, like Alexa or Siri. I, I, I asked on Twitter, does anybody know of a novel, a good novel about the phenomenon of specifically the artificial intelligence helper <laughs> because I had sort of an idea to write something about it and I think it's fascinating I think the idea of delegating more and more of your decisions to just an unseen thing in your phone like that is weirds me out but I also think it's very interesting so anyway this someone pointed this book out to me and it begins in the 90s and goes through the present day into the future and just looks at the the ways it, it's sort of quite a positive book it, it you know there's there's plenty of books about um how uh, AI will become so popular that, or and what's so powerful that it just overwhelms us. Or at least I assume there's plenty of books about that because that feels like it's been a trope for a, a long time. Yeah. We made robots, they got better than us and they, they wrecked us. It is a, a well-worn trope. This is a book about the ways we might be able to enrich ourselves as, as a humanity through artificial intelligence. So it's really, really interesting. I think James Smythe is, by the look of it, build as like a sci-fi writer for people who don't normally like sci-fi and it, it did work I was gonna say I'm sold because I think I'm the same as you I like things that are sort of as real as it gets and I'm terrible for like, if it's set too far in the future or too far in the past I get freaked oh. out ideally anything between about 1920 and 1995 I'm very very happy in that world <laughs> anything I, else I'm, I, I don't want to work out how they went to the toilet in Tudor times yeah this is <laughs> that's the thing isn't it I'm glad you said that because um I often do feel it's a bit of a shortcoming of mine as a reader like I judged a book prize once the Costa prize um it was the first novel category so I'd read about 60 odd novels in reasonably short order and it was a great experience amazing to see 
all these people's minds. Although a lot of the entries were much better than I'd expected. Oh, I don't know what I expected, but anyway, yeah, there were some where I'd pick it up and it would say, the year is 18, and immediately I'm like, oh, is it? <laughs> it's really fun. I remember um, uh, someone recommended the book to me for my sister. I said, oh, it's a thriller. My, my sister loves the thrillers. Um, someone recommended one to me, said, oh, this is great. This is the, it's one of the most exciting thrillers I've ever. But then I picked it up in, in Watertons and it said, we're in Iceland, it is 1742. And I thought, now nah, my sister, that's not a Christmas present, <laughs> that's work. <laughs> Also, I mean, yeah, it's funny you mention how do people go to the toilet in Tudor times because one thing that makes it, I can't imagine being able to write a book set so far in the past that you'd have to research essentially every detail. I do think, I don't read many of these books, but I do admire people for doing it. (laughs) And I I think perhaps what makes, because I think if I were writing one, I would be so almost, it was like I'd want to show my working that I and I'm scared that people aren't going to sort of spend huge you know thousands and because they're often enormous books aren't they it's like oh are they people feel like I've done so much research and I need to show all the research I've done and I I think there are brilliant brilliant books that do it beautifully where you don't see it so much like I'm I'm sort of hugely popular book but I don't know if you ever read um and it's not really quite this but also it's the 70s and it's California and it's a place where I was very happy to hang out um do you read uh, Daisy Jones and the Six actually no I haven't read that although I do know about it yeah I would say if you want to get back into reading and you're finding reading quite stressful and it's just another chore in this horrible horrible year of our Lord 2020 um it's yeah. written as an oral history and it's so engaging and immediate and it's about a 70s rock band in LA so you're just you're by the pool in Chateau Marmont most of the time everyone's having then they're not having a lovely time it's sort of a psychosexual drama of hell in a lot of places but it's oh that's fine I don't know if I want to read about people having a lovely time right now <laughs> <laughs> it's so well researched but also it's written with such skillful lightness you don't feel as though Taylor Jenkins readers sort of show, look i I spent so much of my life learning about yeah. all of this stuff. It's interesting, isn't it? it is, I do remember, in fact, that being a thing that, um, and again, these were first novels, so you can kind of understand it, but uh, something I did find irksome in some of the historical novels when I was doing this massive was exactly what you're talking about. It was that he, um, he walked up the steps of the old police building, which had uh, been torn down 10 years ago and rebuilt, uh, of course, and as he paused, he thought about the how the rails had been done. <laughs> oh, d- hang on a minute. Do you mean you've just been to the British Library for a bit? <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. Has anyone ever walked into a building and thought, oh, what were those railings like 10 years ago? I know. If, I mean, that, I made that example up. But Jeff, definitely, if you, if you see a historical character stop and ponder something which seems a bit odd, it, you always suspect it's just that the author was keen to get that in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you um, a good example. I do think of someone who can, seems to be able to do it effortlessly is I suppose this is not exactly news but I think Sarah Waters is amazing Mm. um because that is somebody who seems to well I know she researches incredibly exhaustively because I've seen her interviewed and she says she'll spend a year in the library you know before even putting pen to paper which is the sort of thing that obviously terrifies me as a notion um same (laughs) she says that or she said in some interview that um the that's her favorite bit the research was almost meant more to her than and she deliberately chose periods like the in into war period with a little stranger or that she didn't know much about you know so that she could have the pleasure of immersing herself in that and all this I find incredibly impressive but um there's no on earth I'm going to spend a year learning about historical period before I can even begin writing (laughs) (laughs) are there any of her novels that you've 
read and, and loved? Almost all of them, actually. I'm a real Waters fan. The trouble with being a Waters fan is that there's ages between the books, though, for this very reason, I guess. There's not been one that I didn't enjoy, but I think the um, the Little Stranger, I did think, was a brilliant book and a, a great example of a, a thriller that's propelled by just pure atmosphere, basically, mm. which is often something that I wouldn't really like. I like plot. I don't like it often when, you know, it annoys me sometimes when you see books high-end literature like prize list books and you, you sort of read it and it's been very no, well written but there's sort of nothing happens you could never say that about Sarah Waters book but also I mean even F Fingersmith I suppose is like maybe the most celebrated one it's an incredibly well realized Victorian world but I don't think I don't remember ever thinking that the research showed heavily you know yeah. she, she's so light so deft about taking you into that world if anyone could cure me of not wanting to read books in the distant past it is a, if she went for an elizabethan setting or something i would have a i would trust her <laughs> <laughs> um, but that said I'd, I'd be delighted if i find out the next one is just in the 80s or something sarah Woods, if you're listening um elizabethan book eight, yeah um sort of regency or new romantic or maybe a sort of time slip between the two yeah I, she's one of the only authors that if that was the blurb i'd be like all right then <laughs> <laughs> But actually, I think it might be that The Little Stranger was the first one I read, if I'm not mistaken. And that is set, you know, relatively recently, like the 50s. So then that was my sort of soft launch with Waters. Uh, and then I, was, I think I probably had, not consciously, but I think I've gone, uh, that I skipped Sarah Waters because I was like, oh, this it sounds like work. And the, the best compliment you could give it is that at no point, I even read, an, again, I read an interview with her and she said, and I hope I'm not misquoting her, but she said something like, as an author, you your job is to put a reader on a funfair ride on the first page and just keep them on the ride till they get off, something like that. And that is, in my head, as a writer, that is, I mean, I hope I'm remembering it right because, because it's constantly in my head. I, you know, every, I don't think she meant that every page of every book has to be, you know, spinning you around. And I, I think she just meant your responsibility to a reader is to stimulate them and excite, or even excite is the wrong word because, not every page of every book has to make you gasp by, but just something about that sense that you've signed up for a ride and let's go on that ride. I find that a really lovely preset yeah. for writing. It's, and also that you want to stay on, that there's so, it's a weird, like there are, yeah. there's so much happening, but you're rooted at one spot. Now, I wanted to ask you about, you know, when you were a teenager and before, what were those early books that you read that were the first things that you chose for yourself where you thought, this is for me, this is what reading is about? When I was a real like, kid, like nine or 10, I was, you know obsessed with uh football and I still am but that was one of my earliest obsessions so I read a lot of like sporty football-y type literature but then weirdly uh in my teenage the, the first books I remember really forming my this is for me reading patterns were um Agatha Christie novels I got obsessed with Agatha Christie when I was a teenager because well I think it's because in English class we had to read so I was 11 you had to choose a, a, a proper novel read it a novel meant for adults it was kind of um quite ballsy assignment that an english teacher set us it's like going go to the school library find a book which was not aimed at you an 11 year old and read it and um so i, I just it was murder on the orient express and i'd heard of it that was all it was i was like well this is a, i believe this is a famous novel i'll have a go at this and obviously i was mesmerized by it because if you've never really read like a whodunit before when you're 11 it blows your mind and then i discovered that there were absolutely hundreds of agatha christie books <laughs> so i became is especially poirot i was really sold on the idea of poirot i haven't read a christie book for years and i don't normally watch the tv ones either but i do i can still see what was so seductive about it I, something there's something so pure about, and there's much more advanced detective fiction out there but something about this 
guy just showing up at the hotel, having a quick look around, being puzzled. But you know he's gonna, you know he's gonna get there. You know there's that moment where he says, oh, "I'll tell you, who did it him." There's something very, very attractive about that, I think. And um, as an adult, I've not read loads of. I've read a couple of like uh, Ian Rankins, and I, I don't, and those are good. But I just, I've, I've never, I've never been very interested in like police procedural mm. novels stuff like that. I think what I'm in it for with a whodunit is passionate about it. I like a sort of uh, Poirot or Marple-esque genius to appear yeah. and just I, I, same with telly I never really like it when when you're in a police station and they're analysing the clues and they're looking at stuff I, I'm old fashioned I just like a gentleman detective to roll up and say <laughs> it was, and I'll tell you why it was her because she's left handed you know I love stuff like that <laughs> and definitely as, as a kid so I used to just mainline those I would take three or four out of the school and, library I can imagine the moment when you you know you're sort of so gripped by it and like, holy hell there's hundreds of these <laughs> It was it was a, a real moment because I, I think when I picked Orange Express, it was on a display. It wasn't with the other Christie books. It was just on some sort of display. So it was only when I went went and looked under C for Christie, I was like, Christ, there's fifty of these. <laughs> <laughs> I was very lucky to have a, our school um, had a fantastic library, so they did have loads of them in. And then I started to seek them out in my local library, and I don't know how many I read. There'll still be plenty that I didn't read because obviously she was unbelievably prolific but I did between the ages of about I'd say maybe 13 and 15 or 16 I, I read loads of them I'd take them on holiday and stuff like that and again even now I can really connect with that part of me that was they're all the same length like 200 pages you clatter through them uh, and you know that about four-fifths of the way through you'll find out everything and you know that every 50 pages or so one of the suspects will be bumped off as well it, you know it, I suppose it's sort of formulaic but I do sometimes think she's underrated still because uh, that sort of plottery uh, plotting is like witchcraft to me mm. being able to think of those things and as you said and you've not got you know that I do think that now in in the, the CSI times when the technology is such that sort of it ruins it that the idea that it's just someone being ingenious and really, really yeah. observing and paying attention. Because exactly. that's what you do as a reader as well. You know, exactly. you get to be Poirot. Exactly. A friend of mine, a, a, a clever friend of mine um, called Rose, said that all reading is basically uh, an act of detection. Uh, whatever the book is, your brain is basically being Poirot. Even if it's not a whodunit or a mystery, your brain is decoding, you know. And you're right, that's exactly the appeal of it. I, and I, you get people that watch these things or read it and like my mum for example and immediately goes oh I think I know and I was never into that I never even tried to guess I'd never even wanted to be prior I just wanted to I was more like Hastings I like being the guy that's like well I've got no bloody idea have you <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> um, more fun I think so I, I don't like watching things with people who claim to have worked it out in 20 minutes whether they're whether it's true or not I'm just like shut up and just experience it at the pace that the, they, the author wanted yeah, us to you know believe um, in their their skill. I, I can still remember how haunted I was by, I can't remember what it was, I think it was called A Murder is Announced, where there's a murder mystery party and then a murder at, a real murder at that, which is a classic Christie sort of mm. conceit. And I remember one of the characters that you got quite attached to being murdered halfway. That was one of the things about Nagra Christie. Someone else will always die before you get to the answer. That feeling when the unknown murderer is starting to get desperate and they start killing other people who know that mm. there's nothing creepy as that and Agatha Christie's amazing at that but I think that's that's the like the funfair ride isn't it that's sort of the handbrake turn where you're like you're yeah. rooted to your seat exactly and I suppose you know it's, it's an underrated skill to be able to write books like that where 
there are three or four moments where the reader is exactly spun round all over again. The irony with all this uh, analogy is I hate actual funfair rides. There's, there's never been a roller coaster <laughs> off in real life. <laughs> reading our reading books is about as adrenalised as I want my life to become, I think. If you were to, I don't know, something in the world has changed, everything's fine, you can fly to Australia, uh, what book do you take with you? Firstly, I'm really pleased even to even to picture this. Is, <laughs> I used to go to Australia every year for um, comedy festivals there. And so this is a good example of um, a flight where I actively, yeah, I'm trying to think. There was a book I read on a flight to Australia last year called The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is this enormous novel about trees, basically. That was very very good but I didn't even it's so long that even Australia and back isn't enough for it and I'm not sure I'll go back to that because I did finish it in the end but like I'm trying to think of a, a substantial book that That's is interesting because de- I saw that and I remember was that long listed for the booker I think it was yeah it's American book but they can do that these days of course I did something um, last year where I was um I did some presenting on BBC News for the the booker yeah. prize and it was and I had to read Duck's Newburyport um <laughs> yeah I that's a good example that's a big old book and I was massively resentful of Duck's Newburyport and I was like oh and it's not just that it's enormous but it's one sentence long well, yeah, I looked, I picked it up in the bookshop and thought, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like when I actually opened it and saw what it was, it seemed even less likely I could ever get through that. So I'd had to sort of, I'd set a timer for an hour and just go and see how much I could kind of get in. And I was really, wow. really daunted. And then after about, I think, two and a half hour chunks, because also the way it's written, I thought there's no possible way I can remember what's going on. This is so dense. Yeah. And it got in my head and I fell in love with it. And the narrator just lodged with me. And I'd be thinking about her all the time and things would sort of float up. And I was just astonished. It was such a feat. And it's one of those, like, it's the book that has surprised me the most. So after that, maybe I ought to have a go at the overstory. Well, it makes me wonder if I should have a go at that because like most people who weren't directly working on the Booker Prize, I I looked at it and thought, I just don't think I can. (laughs) Um, And... All of the reactions I've ever seen to that book have either been, trust me, this is the most amazing experience, or I got 50 pages in and it was absolutely pointless. So I, I'm not sure which side I'd come down on, but it does feel as if that, if, if there's ever been an example of a book that you save for a plane, it's probably that, because it feels like you'd have to do it in chunk, substantial chunks, otherwise you wouldn't. It's not something, you can't pick that up in the bath and then read five pages. And I think maybe like you, I've always, always believed like reading has to be just, you know, fun above all. It's it's something that should sort of serve us and be be joyous. Absolutely. And if you want to reread your old Sweet Valley High books, which I always do, but reading Ducks, I was like, oh, it is a muscle and this is hard. But I liked the first time I've remembered that sometimes it's really, really good to to challenge yourself. Yeah, and that the harder it is really up front, the more you get out. I find that really interesting. I mean, like I, I, it's sort of how I feel about running, I suppose. I do quite a lot of running. It's one of my main uh hobbies i suppose you'd call it but um like most runners before it starts i always think i don't want to do this at all <laughs> and uh, I, I, reading i think is uh, reading a difficult book maybe is a bit like that you 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 have to invest something but the rewards you do do multiply and yeah that's the thing it's interesting isn't it because i, I remember seeing and i can't remember her name unfortunately the author of ducks um lucy elman i saw some sort of interview with her she says something along the lines of i don't care if you think it's too long with I like I wrote the book that I was going to write I, there's not a, a length that I'm meant to write to or something along those lines and I really admired that I'm, I was like well yeah if if your idea is 900 pages long then that then do it um but yeah I agree with you 
there's a book called The Marlowe Papers by someone called Ros Barber. And um, it's a novel in verse. And it's all about this. So again, set in the old days, about the idea that Christopher Marlowe wrote the plays of Shakespeare secretly, this thing which comes up sometimes. So the book follows Marlowe, but all of it, all of it, nothing against the idea of a verse novel. I've read a couple in my time, but I, I did look at it and think, this is unlikely to be fun. And I was absolutely wrong. I loved it. And uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, again, it comes down to time. We've got so little time to read that it, it's a big call to pick up something which you're not convinced is going to be fun. Because if it, as you say, if it's not fun, then what is it? But as you also said, there are different forms of fun and having your mind messed with and opened up and like reset a bit by a tough book is fun in its own right. You've just got to make yourself do it in the first place. At the moment, I'm reading um, State of Wonder by Anne Patchett. And that's Mm. something that I think I would have thought before, oh, I don't really fancy going to the jungle and there's been a murder and there are lots of terrifying poisonous snakes and bugs. I was really surprised by how how gripped I was. I don't love violence in books and I don't love major actual peril um, but I read um, I read The Dutch House earlier this year I get a feeling quite reluctant and quite like oh this is going to be quite heavy and quite literary and quite dry and lots lots of describing of things and it was just so immediate I think we're quite similar as readers when you when you said lots of describing of things I, I also had that feeling in the pit of my stomach <laughs> oh, don't describe it too much it's so funny because I don't know if it was which year it was but I remember the year that the head of the booker panel said they would like they were looking for books that zipped along nicely or some phrase like that and she got into so much trouble from the book establishment for that I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to expect of a book that that there's a feeling of pace and momentum and excitement again doesn't mean it has to be short it's just it's the immediacy is exactly what you said I don't think an author should make you feel as if you have to meet them halfway. I don't think that you should spend 20 pages thinking, why am I being told this much detail? Mm. Or, you know, I feel like, it's a bit like, and again, it feels like, it can seem like quite a shallow point of view, but it's like when there's some TV series you've never watched and people are like, I mean, the first seven episodes aren't great, but if you stick with it, again, that's seven hours of television. (laughs) I, I feel like that with books as well. Sometimes people will say about a book, if you just, you just got to stick in there for 100 pages. But again, I'm like, well, I mean, do I, though? Would it have killed the author to just uh, seduce me from page one? Well, I guess that I was thinking about comedy and how, you know, comedians can't afford to spend hours and, you know, or minutes even setting yeah. things up. It seems I... bizarre that readers are expected to give so much of themselves before the yield when you're like, you know, you've got five minutes to blow people away. at the. I think that might be why I feel like that about books, because I don't get to go on stage and spend 25 minutes just talking about my childhood and how I, how I got to this book or um or my grandparents so that's one one of my um one thing I will mark a book down for mentally is when you even before you meet the characters you hear how their parents met and then mm. maybe their pa- you know like if a book starts with someone's grandparents meeting I'm like hmm, can we get to the actual people unless there's a very specific reason why I'm being told this she first saw him paddling his canoe. The canoe was carved from ancient wood that was from a yew tree. Just like, right, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> Unless this is important. And I could, again, I don't want to sound like uh, some sort of junk food reader. I just always think it's important for a writer, and I'm, I'm not certainly no expert on, um, I'm in no position to advise people how to write, but, but I do think it's, I think a writer should think exactly how much information does the reader need at any given moment. It's, it's a real sinking feeling when you invest in, two characters that have met and fallen in love and stuff and then you realise they're only the 
they're only the grandparents. <laughs> so now I've got to forget those people and care about this girl instead. Have I? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Mark soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen a book that just made me feel so much joy and cheer during a time where there's been a real dearth of it. Between the Covers, a collection of Julie Cooper's best Sunday Times columns, is a tonic. It's so wise, gorgeous, generous, funny and human. If you like champagne and sexy dresses and good times and you want to feel better about your chip toenails, your excessive fondness for biscuits and your sink full of washing up, come on down. Between the Covers is published by Bantam and it's out now. The audiobook is narrated by former guest and friend of the cast, Pandora Sykes. Now, back to Mark. Other than the books you've mentioned, is there anything that comes into your head? If you're like, what's a book that gripped you from the first page? There are two or three books in answer to your question that I can see, which I, which I loved. But I, um, yeah, I can't really remember much about the start or anything at all. Sometimes I, there's a book which I would say I love, but I can't. I've just looked across at um, this book, Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow, quite a famous novel, I think, American, like mid-century novel about, well, about the jazz era. This is the thing. All I remember is that I really, really enjoyed it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it at all. <laughs> um, but there is one, I use this book a lot as a, an example of good writing. Um, it's by uh, Moshin Hamid is his name, although I don't know how, if I'm pronouncing it right. But he's, and the book is called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. And again, it's a brief book um, written in the um, second person, I suppose it is. So you do this, you do that. Very unusual. Um, so it's sort of written like a handbook on how to get rich in, in modern Asia. But it follows two characters, uh, a male and female character, a, a and uh, I don't exactly remember how it started, but I do remember instantly buying into it, thinking this is beautiful. It's quite a sh-. He also wrote a book called Exit West recently, 
they are quite brief books, both of these. He also wrote a book called The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is quite a bit longer, and I haven't read that, so draw your own conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's not, it's not about laziness on the part of a reader. It's just that, that it's not even about brevity. It's just something about... He writes in a way, certainly, where you feel as if, as a reader, he, the author is saying, come with me, I'm going to tell you some things straight away. I don't think it's wrong to want that. I remember reading 1984 when I was a kid, well, a teenager, like, like almost everyone did when they were teenagers, and there's that thing about it was, a, it was a bright, cold day and the clocks were just striking 13. Winston Smith, you meet him, within a paragraph, you know, and again, snobs will say you don't need to learn everything you have to know within the first page. But I think I'd say, yeah, but it's nice if you do, though. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly as a teenager, and I suppose a lot of people sneer at Orwell as like, yeah, those are the novels that you like when you're a teenager. And maybe that's true. But I do remember that was an important book in my reading development because I thought here is a book that is, has a famous literary status. And yet I'm instantly in the world. I don't, I don't feel too stupid for it. But I think, you know, the urgency and economy of it will always, always work and it will always move you. Yeah. And I think that's so appealing. And, you know, because when you're, I think when one is a teenager, you know, that's when you're kind of at your, at your keenest and sharpest and you've not, you don't want to kind of meander. And it really, you know, it's such a gift to grab people and say, oh, you know, I mean, I was thinking how, like, oh, it's a book the teenagers like, like, I think there's no greater compliment because yeah. all of your feelings are so vivid and so extreme and you are so prepared to go where someone will take you. And if an author has been taking teenagers on that journey, ever, God, when was 1984 written? 48? I should know I think, it, I think it was 48 because I think he, he um, spot the digits around. Yeah. That's what? Nearly 70 years? Over 70 years? It must have been just the 70th anniversary just, just gone, I guess. Yeah, yeah. To have been propelling teenagers for 70 years, blimey. If you've ever met a teenager, I don't think you would sneer at the achievement of holding down the attention of a teenager for 200 pages. Yeah, yeah. to be able to write a book which, you know, not necessarily politically engages, but which may, has, yeah, has made successions generations of teenagers and students young people think about power totalitarianism you know all the things it does it is yeah really a hell of an achievement in fact the fact that 1984 is so relatively easily read and absorbed by almost anyone incredible achievement the more you think about it because uh, and that's the thing with literary snobbery there is this idea that any sort of populism in writing is automatically to be looked down on, but why wouldn't you want the book to reach as many people as possible if you thought it was writing worth writing it at all? And why why is it not an achievement for somebody to be able to transport that many people, especially when books, are, you know, as we said, any book is a difficult sell to a chaotic world like this. So yeah, there should be very little shame in them. My only exception is the only books I look down on are celeb memoirs or well, books which have been clearly cynically engineered and published to sell to as many people as possible. But I don't think there's any f fiction about that I'd feel like that about, because if you can, if you can find a million people who want to read something, then good luck to you, I reckon. And, and I think that even then, maybe there are some, you know, celeb memoirs that they sort of, they get people into reading. You're right. There's no, there's, there's no grounds for snobbery really, because yeah, any book that causes someone to be interested in the idea of picking up a book has got to be better than not. Than not having it you're right I, I suppose actually i suppose what i'm thinking of is specific examples of people i know who've been approached to write a book because they're famous and the publishers 
you know all the publishers are thinking is if, if her face was in it on the cover of that that would sell loads but yeah even then i mean if that's a couple of hundred thousand people that wouldn't normally fancy going to a bookshop yeah there are no downsides to books being written and published except that there are too many of them um for, for my ones to get attention <laughs> <laughs> that's it it's going into water stains but I'm, I'm, there's a problem here you have thousands of books and only a percentage of those books are mine they should all be mine um <laughs> no, sometimes i i'm next to sarah waters on the uh, shelves as well alphabetically oh, nice, of course quite often if I, my mum is always going into bookshops to check if they have my book and i don't normally succumb to that sort of um uh egoism but occasionally i'll have a look at the w's if i'm an author and not infrequently they won't have any of my books but they they always will have a full set of waters and it's just it's useful to have a, and also Jeanette Winterston there are quite a few <laughs> real heavyweights around my section of the W's so sometimes it is a humbling experience to look at the shelves <laughs> that's advice for um for writers isn't it change your surname check the letters and find an obscure letter yeah see if you can have a surname which doesn't occur too close to a really, really popular writer. You could dominate the X's. Yeah. yeah, get yourself a letter which not too many people have snapped up. You don't want to be called something, anything like Stephen King. <laughs> Actually, that's at least Waters has only written about, I don't know, half a dozen books and Winchester, not too many. Probably the worst thing is if you, yeah, if, you, if you're too alphabetically close to a really prolific author, then the entire shell, you're not even on the shell. Can you remember the last book you bought in a bookshop that surprised you? Or did you find yourself in a section or an area you wouldn't usually and you were... That's an interesting drawn. question again. Uh, and uh, there definitely have been plenty because I do do that. I, I, I regularly pick up a book, think, I'm not going to buy this, am I? And then and then I'm, I'm at the checkout. <laughs> and putting your pin in, in a trance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why um, it, it's one of the things, I mean, I, I suppose... You can still go to bookshops, of course, but one of the things I do miss when I'm not in a bookshop, one of the things you can't replicate, and it's why books, book sales are struggling or have struggled, even though we still have, people think everything's about Amazon and stuff, but surprising number of book decisions are just made by that moment of being in a shop and thinking, yeah, why not? And that's, as, as a sort of like low ranking author, that's where you, that's where, where you pick up some of your trade. Just the, um, well, actually, I mean, one thing is, and I don't know how I even feel about the book really, but um, the, um, Extinction Rebellion's handbook, This Is Not a Drill, about climate change, was a book that I saw everywhere because it's the sort of book that if you're in Waterstones, they have it there by the counter, one of those books that trap you. And I think for that very reason, I was like, well, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying um, Matt Haig's tiny book about anxiety. And that's nothing to do with him. Just any any book that looks as if they've put it out there to, to trip me over on the way. I'm like, <laughs> I resent it. Or it's often those books like, funny book about Brexit, funny book about this stuff, like Christmas stocking type books, but all the year round, stuff like that. I'm like, no, I'm not spending another five just because you put that there. And then about the sixth time it happened, I picked it up and thought, well, I mean, this is a book about the end of days and whether we can stave it off. Why am I not engaging with this? <laughs> <laughs> so I did buy it. And, but it certainly, yeah, it definitely comes in the category of surprise purchase because not only was I not going to buy it i'd consciously thought nah <laughs> i'm not having it and of course it was very interesting very very easily read um quite troubling yeah there was another book on the same subject actually called by jonathan saffron fur called um we are the weather again about about the planet and what we can do about it and it's not that i'm not interested in it everyone's interested in climate change if they're not mad it just i think it comes back to this fun thing it doesn't seem as if it's gonna be fun um and i've read his novels before like everything is illuminated and but um 
that was obviously not in the fiction section I'd somehow wandered into a section mm. about climate or something and I recognized his name but again I remember holding it in my hand thinking well this sounds interesting but I can't really I, I don't see myself leaving the shop with it and again within five minutes I had done <laughs> <laughs> something almost, happens a sort of mist descends obviously yeah I almost feel like once I've got a book once I've picked up a book in the shop it's I, it, I'm almost destined to buy it it seems like like even if I've if I've done the work of picking it up and reading about it it feels as if that's 80% of the way to buying it really partly because books are so skillfully blurbed these days almost any book you read the cover of you think oh that sounds amazing I think one of Daphne du Maurier's last books and I can't think what it's called and I've not actually read it but weirdly it's I think it, I'm going to get this horribly wrong. I think it might have been published in the 70s. I'm looking over at Producer Dale, who's nodding. Um, oh, and it's kind, yeah. it's kind of about Brexit, but way before Brexit. Right. And there's a quote on the front, for, or there's an edition, an early edition with a quote on the front from, I think, the Daily Mirror. And the quote is something like, this is a book about what would happen if um, Britain left the European Union. Like, do you not want to say, like, a great read or hugely yeah, entertaining? Or, yeah. Not like, it's very... Um, <laughs> It's just a that's description of the content. <laughs> Sometimes you can spot it. I mean, all all books, obviously all books have got um, some sort of quote on and something. But um, I think, again, because of comedy, because of my line of work, I, I, I know um, how to spot a quote that's been just snipped a little bit or slightly given a spin because there are certain words like fascinating or... Uh, which if they appear out of any context you think well, that could easily have been this fascinating idea is ruined yeah. by the execution or something like that fascinating <laughs> dot 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 <laughs> Nothing else. exactly generally I think you should be suspicious of one word quotes because you could pretty much lift yeah. that out of any sentence and uh, could have said this book is not that fascinating <laughs> so, um, my editor or my old editor Francesca and I used to talk about this but we we both despite being big bookworms we both share some of the like kind of suspicions that you and I have been talking about of like, um, over ambitious books, too difficult books and so on, even though she's an incredibly voracious reader, she's an editor and she publishes incredibly ambitious books. Um, and yeah, our thing was always sweeping. If a book is described as sweeping, that, that, which is a, it's something you see in quotes quite often, but that is borderline, not a compliment at all. I'd say <laughs> that might well mean that it takes place in five different centuries and you, you don't know where the hell you are. <laughs> At the very least, sweeping is likely to mean uh, an enormous number of characters. I don't it's know like, that that's You're going to have to that. keep going back to the front to check who everyone is. Oh, I hate that. If a book starts with a family tree or a map, I'm straight away, I'm like, oh. <laughs> Am I going to be flicking back and forth constantly? I think that's one of the, one of the things I love about that book, um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, is, again, it sounds like laziness, but I don't think it is. I think it's a... I think it's a defensible thing for readers to like. It is about basically just a guy and a girl getting older. There's a series of vignettes of that happening. And you know quite early on, you're only going to have to invest in those two people. And again, I think that's a brilliant skill. I think to be able to make a reader care desperately about two people and almost nothing else is, I don't think that's to be looked down either. And again, I don't think as a reader, there's any, um, I suppose one day is the same to take mm. a, more famous example um i heard someone say about one day by david nichols um you know all it is is just these two people and you see them every year and that's it and uh, to me that's a huge compliment yeah. to be able to execute an idea as simple and clean as that is is 
that skill, I think. Because yeah. what's so masterful about One Day and the way he builds those characters is that it's, as a reader, it's so easy to kind of fill in the gaps so clearly. You're not there going like, well, I need to know what's happening to Emma when it's not you like. You just, you sort of know. I know. I, reading it, I was really envious of how, of how well it had been executed. I do think he's a very good writer, Dave Nichols. And I, yeah, exactly what you said. It's, it's like, how much a reader needs to and doesn't need to know at any given moment is such a, such a fine art to work that out, I think. Because you're right, I don't think you ever wonder what happened to the characters in the year since you last saw them in that book. You just, you just fill in the gaps. Or I mean, occasionally you're told, but loads of the time you're not told. I do think that's really clever. I think it's so easy to over-inform a reader mm. when you're writing. I'm constantly doing it. You, 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 read back, you read drafts back and you think, yeah, why did we really need to know how he felt about his grandmother's house? You just thought at one time the reader might want to know that. But judging that is the difference between a good writer and a mediocre one, I think. Um, we keep coming back to it. It's, I think urgency is the word you use. I think that's a good word. I think everything that, it's fine to be discursive. It's fine to, we're going off on a tangent of 20 pages now, fine. But there needs to be some sense of urgency about, again, I think it might come from the instincts of a stand-up. If I'm telling an anecdote on stage, I can only afford to include what, what needs to be said. Mm. Otherwise, I'm wasting time. And I know that a book is a different type of, much longer pleasure so I, i'm not saying that a, a, i don't think an author should race through the way that a standard races through a routine but it is something about do they need to know this is it helping them that is not a bad thing to have in mind i think i wonder and this is this might require a little bit of thinking if you could um time travel to any point and go back and blurb a writer that you love other Ooh, than good... agatha christie who do you think you'd pick yeah i think i can answer this um one of my favourite books, certainly growing up, but I reckon I'd still have it in my top 20 or so, is a, um, except I hate, make, I, I hate being asked for those sort of lists because you know what it's like. You can immediately think of a thousand. Um, but a book that's been important to me over the years is called The Third Policeman by um, Flann O'Brien. Yes. Um, you know, do you know, I, I think it's true to say everybody that's ever read it loved or loathed it. It's one of those. It's, well, you know, it's very hard to describe, but it's a deranged weird comic masterpiece uh, that takes place in a um, sort of parallel universe. Everything is perfectly recognisable and normal. Like there's no, we wouldn't call it sci-fi, but um, a, a series of escalating series of baffling things happen to a central character, basically. I think I've got a soft spot for books like that. I loved The Majors when I was a student as well by John Foles. And that's, in a way, not dissimilar. Someone goes to a place, more and more and more mad things happen to them. And they just they don't understand why. <laughs> I feel like that speaks to me somehow about what it's like being alive. Um, but this book, The Third Policeman, is I read it when I was 17. And it, I think it was probably, the, if you had to say one book that, it, that motivated me to write, it would be that. Because I just had never read anything like it. In fact, I read it on my 17th birthday. Oh, wow. My uncle gave it to me. My uncle, um, I was still, he's still uh, with us. My uncle Jeff, I'll, I'll name check him. He was quite a big influence on my reading habits. Um, and now and again, when I reached a, a particular landmark birthday or something, he'd say, right, I think it's about time you're ready for this. So on my 17th birthday, he sent me this and said, this is one of the best books you'll ever read. You must, you must read this. He didn't order me to read it on my birthday, but he, the inscription basically said, right, you're ready, do this. <laughs> so I read it and I was uh, mesmerised by how strange it was. I, it, sometimes gets, it sometimes gets compared to like a, an Alice in Wonderland for adults type situation. Or, you know, it's that kind mm. of... Oh my, why am I in this world? Really funny, full of stupid 
footnotes, um, trickery, that, you know, all that sort of thing. Kind of a nerd's novel in a way, I suppose. And um, yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. And I still couldn't name many novels like it, having read a lot more books since then. But yeah, the story of it is that he was, he'd written this famous book, well, famous at the time book called Swim Two Birds. It was a big success. Uh, Flannery Brian, not his real name, it was Brian O'Nolan, I think. He wrote in Irish and English. And then the third policeman was, was a, not exactly a follow-up, but it was later on in his career. And the publishers just didn't like it. They thought it was too weird. I read all this in the, in the foreword to the novel, or maybe there was an afternote. So I learned this you know, at the same time. It's very odd that they thought it was too weird because his other books are also absolutely bonkers. <laughs> That's All of his books were mad. So I don't know what, maybe a new editor came in and thought, never really liked this guy. <laughs> um, and so he, I think about this quite a lot, that they didn't want to publish it. So he just hid the manuscript and, and pretended he'd lost it, which um, these days is not something an author could really get away with. It, it, it amazes me to think of a time when there was one copy of your book existed and it was on paper. So you, you could claim that you just didn't know where it was anymore. <laughs> or, or, you know, you hear about authors' books being destroyed in fires and stuff, and that's literally it. That's your four years' work. It, God, it's it, it does head in. isn't it? Yeah, because even if you lose... You, I've lost a week of work before because I didn't back something up, and that feels like the end of the world. Imagine, I can't even... It makes me feel funny to think about it. So awful about that as well, as as soon as the awful thing happens, you just want someone to kind of sympathise and commiserate. The first thing anyone bloody says is, well, did you back it up? Like, no! Absolutely, absolutely. And then they normally go on to say, you know, you really should back things up every day. (laughs) Thank you, yes. (laughs) Never Um, give anyone advice that requires time travel. Yeah, don't don't give anyone advice, which is not so much advice, just a negative review of how well they've done. (laughs) And so then obviously this this book, The Policeman, at some point, somebody rediscovered it published it posthumously and it became a sort of cult classic among people like me like in other words I don't know people that like weird comic novels I suppose and um and then there's another twist which is I read all this in 1997 or 17 um and and then about 10 years later the book appeared in Lost the American series someone was seen reading it on the desert island and it immediately sparked all these speculation about whether it was you know a clue to the plot of Lost so then suddenly thousands of people were buying it and um, I loved it when that happened, but I also felt very melancholy that, that he'd been dead for 30 years. He died in 1966, I think. I ended up writing a dissertation on this guy at university. Um, so that's, without doubt, I'd go back. I'd somehow find a way of persuading the publishers to publish it at the time, i.e. while he was, because I think he died, I don't know if he was an alcoholic, but a big drinker, died disappointed basically and I, I would love to be able to, um, and not that old either. I guess he would still be dead by now, but I, I feel like I, I might have might be able to change the destiny of one guy by just knocking on the door of this place in Dublin and saying, I promise you, I, I come from the future, <laughs> as you can see by my clothes, and loads of people are going to love this book. Let me blurb it now, I'll get it out for you. If you wanted to write a sort of science fiction time-travelling book about you rediscovering... Flannery Brune and making him a legend in his own lifetime, I would, I would read it now. <laughs> I would take the rest of the day off and just crack up. Say, my worry is I don't think too many people, I don't think too many other people would feel like that. <laughs> I think if I take that idea to my publisher and say this is the next book, they'd they'd have some reservations. I will blurb it, and I promise I won't say sweeping. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, maybe we can, maybe we can get this off the ground. If I write it this afternoon, you blurb it. We just put it out there. Let's see what happens. Awesome. Let's go. Mark, I could talk 
books for the rest of the day but you've you've got this new flannel brain factor right yeah I, I suppose i better get, get cracking with that because i've got to pick my kids up in a couple of hours so it doesn't leave me with a huge window <laughs> huge thanks to mark the excellent contact is out now it's smart funny and incredibly moving it does explore very sensitive issues connected with mental health and suicide if you need help or if there's someone that you're worried about, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day. The number is 116123 or you can email joe at samaritans.org. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Booked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast and get the word out. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Mark at acast.com booked. Finally, I leave you with this short, sweet quote from Barack Obama. Reading is what makes all other learning possible. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.